Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm one of the show's hosts, Kevin Gastola. I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. We're very pleased to have for our episode this week, Donna Merck, who is a associated Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. So thank you, Donna, for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, what's consuming the airwaves right now as we record this interview is this reaction to the Trump rally, uh, the fact that uh, the student body at UIC um, all the across all demographics: Latinos, African Americans, Asians, Arab Americans, you know, Muslim people um, resisted and contributed to the shutdown. With grassroots activists coming together uh, to shut down Trump's rally, and there's this whole conversation right now about what the sort of response should be to uh, this kind of hate that Trump's campaign has stood for. And so just to begin, before we get into some uh, more uh, general issues of the 2016 election that we wanted to talk about with you today, I thought we'd address what's actually uh, in the news and and get your take on what you think of how people should be responding to Trump when he comes to your city and he wants to put on his campaign speech. Well, um, I found out about what happened last night because a friend of mine who's an activist in Los Angeles called me to tell me about these massive protests, um, kind of multiracial, black, Mexican, Latino, Arab uh, protests happening. And he was so excited about it. So, you know, he's coming out of a organizing community in Los Angeles that has been mobilized about Trump from the very beginning and was just utterly ecstatic to see the scale of pushback against Trump and to see a multiracial um, kind of coalition come around that. The thing that I'm really struck by is that Donald Trump chose to come visit the University of Illinois campus. And I've been to organizing events. It's one of the centers of the anti-state sanctioned violence movement. So, you know, if I had to make an analogy, it would be like, you know, a, um, uh, uh, how do I put this, a pro-military hawk coming to Berkeley in 1966. <laughs> you know, it's a, I think it was a provocation. Um, but I think what's so exciting about it is to see this organized response of young people and coming together around coalitions. One frustration I feel is in reading the New York Times and mainstream press in the United States that they talk about uh, they talk about Donald Trump with real sanitization. You know, they call him the common words that's used is to call him a populist or a nationalist. But what I always say when I'm interviewed is that Trump is a racist. And this is a his core candidacy was launched around calling Mexicans rapists and saying that Muslims should wear ID badges. And that has really what's buoyed his campaign combined with his status as reality TV star. But the racism, racism is the essence of the Trump campaign. And, you know, I've had debates with some of my colleagues who actually call Trump a moderate. And they say that because he supports abortion rights and at various points he supported Medicare for all, universal health care in the U.S. And it's almost as if racism is utterly erased, um, not to use the pun, but it is, um, you know, it's like the third rail of American politics. It's always there, but no one speaks about it in the mainstream press. And so to see people wearing signs that say, I am not a rapist 
you know, to see young people directly name Trump's rhetoric and say it's unacceptable is just beautiful and very exciting. I'm also and this is a larger thing we can talk about with the election, we're seeing new types of coalitions being born and people meeting each other. And one of the things I was very worried about with Trump is that the kind of right-wing white nationalism that he represents, that this is building a network and a political culture that's going to extend far beyond this election. And that is still a huge issue. But it's nice to see these counter-protests and seeing, you know, ways particularly for to create a unity around opposing racism. And in this moment of the anti-state sanctioned violence movement, I think it's so important to see these different constituencies coming together, both black, Latino, and Arab, but also the different kinds of repression that these communities are facing. So African-Americans and Latinos are facing both criminalization, but then also the whole state apparatus around immigration immigration, criminalization, criminalization of unsanctioned migration, um, as are other populations. And then thinking about Arabs, Arab migrants and uh, Arab Americans, the whole infrastructure of the war on terror. So I think that um, this, is, this is a really exciting moment, not just because it prevented Trump from speaking. That in itself is an amazing triumph. But the most exciting part to me is, you know, the coalitions and uh, networks that are being built as a result of it. And then as we move into our focus, which we wanted to spend most of our time on the Democratic side of the election, the primary thus far, uh, we've got the statement that Hillary Clinton put out on what happened at the Donald Trump rally. I don't, Rania, did you want to read this? So in response to what happened at the Trump rally, uh, Hillary Clinton released the following statement. She said, the divisive rhetoric we are seeing should be of grave concern to us all. We all have our differences, and we know many people across the country feel angry. We need to address that anger together. All of us, no matter what party we belong to or what views we hold, should not only say loudly and clearly that violence has no place in our politics, we should use our words and deeds to bring Americans together. Last year in Charleston, South Carolina, an evil man walked into a church and murdered nine people. The families of those victims came together and melted hearts in the statehouse, and the Confederate flag came down. That should be the model we strive for to overcome painful divisions in our country. Um, you know, I think it's just really, it's a statement that is deeply, first of all, disingenuous. This is a woman that said about the killing of Muammar Gaddafi, we came, we saw, he died. She has used the rhetoric of violence and imperial violence throughout her career as senator, as secretary of state, and now as presidential candidate. <clears throat> including her threat to bomb Iran. So to hear Hillary Clinton talk about violence in this way is just, it's deeply hypocritical. But in interpreting what her statement means, it's striking to me that she's using violence as this kind of term that she could be talking about the alleged violence of the protesters, as it was reported in the mainstream media, people who are trying to prevent Trump simply from speaking and kind of spreading his rhetoric of hate, or it could be interpreted as um, a kind of condemnation of Donald Trump. But she purposely keeps that ambiguous. And this strategy of talking about, you know, the problems of violence, this is a, these, these are code words. 
During the urban rebellions in the 1960s, the condemnation of violence was used all the time, and everyone understood what that meant. It's a colorblind rhetoric about black people protesting. And I think Clinton is extending that more broadly. But that, that political rhetoric exists in a context of a political culture in which you condemn violence that I think voters of a particular age hear that and know what that means. But she puts in the section about Dylan Roof, who she doesn't name, but by talking about the violence against African-Americans and the sense of unity that's brought about after that, she's also, you know, she's trying to knit together a coalition in which she wants to maintain the support of the black vote. But she also wants to make a broad-based appeal. And I've written about this in detail about the Clintons' long history of appealing to um, racist white working class voters. I don't know how else to put it. And we saw that rhetoric in 2008 with the discussion of Barack Obama's candidacy as a fairy tale. So for me, while that rhetoric has this kind of ambiguity to it, I actually don't think it is. I think it's a very calculated attempt to throw bones to different constituencies that are really in tension and contradiction with one another. Well, I guess while we're on the topic of Hillary Clinton, because I know we want to get to Bernie Sanders as well, but you did write this article for The New Republic that you just referenced. It's called The Clinton's War on Drugs When Black Lives Didn't Matter, and that was last month. Um, and it's a really important article. I encourage everybody to go read it. Uh, but so in terms of the Clinton's history um, with you know, with, I guess, disenfranchising um, black people, putting them behind bars and speaking to them um, in racially coded ways and speak, you know, and, and, and putting out racist messages. Uh, and in terms of now and what she's doing now, where she's, you know, traveling around the country, she's recruited the mothers of, um, of black children who've been killed by police or vigilantes um, to be to campaign for her. And she's really re- remade herself uh, into this um, image of uh, what, you know, I guess what you could call a social justice warrior um, against <laughs> racism, you know? Uh, so, so, you know, and then you see this, like there's, you know, huge support um, obviously from black Americans, particularly in the South. And you talk about some of the patronage networks down um, in the South and, and so, and then how that helps the Clintons. So I guess, can you address those things and, you know, the Clintons history and then I guess just juxtaposing that with what we're seeing now and why with the support for the Clintons? Yeah. Yeah. You put it very well about Hillary Clinton reinventing herself as a social justice warrior. I thought that was brilliantly said. And she likes to use that language, strength and experience. And I talk about that in my book. Um, To be honest, I find the Clintons to be absolutely paradoxical. And of course, I lived through the era in the 1990s. I just graduated from college. And um, it it is a genuine surprise to me about how effectively Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton have been able to elide what the policies that they were responsible for in the 1990s. So the frame for talking about this is the scale of African American support in the South, Um, where you saw these huge margins of victories in states with either black majorities or very, very large um, portions of the electorate. So um, the Clintons, I think, were able, and, and going back to the 1990s, Bill Clinton coming from Arkansas, from a white working class family that was deeply familiar with Southern culture and Southern mores, and also was very comfortable in the presence of black people. And after the Reagan administration and then the Bush election in which essentially George Bush Sr. is elected on running an anti-crime, 
anti-crime platform. So Jonathan Simon has argued that he's the first president to truly be elected on an anti-crime platform. Mm. So it's the Lee Atwater's demonization of Willie Horton, who was a convicted felon who was out on a parole on a furlough program over the weekend that raped a white woman. That incident was used to argue that not only was Michael Dukakis, the Democratic candidate, soft on crime, soft on the death penalty, but that essentially that he was condoning this kind of violence. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely essential to uh, George Bush Sr. winning the election. So the kind of dog whistle politics of crime and punishment were really important in the Republican Party. So when Bill Clinton runs in 1992, I think African-Americans have experienced the intense racism of the Republican Party. And Bill Clinton himself runs on an anti-crime platform. He flies back before the New Hampshire Convention in order to preside over the execution of a man who many felt had the IQ of, um, of a seven-year-old child. And he does this very publicly. So he himself takes an anti-crime stance. But he has close relationships with African-American elites and political elites, his relationship with Maya Angelou, with Vernon Jordan, when he comes into the White House in 1992 and is reelected in 1996. Bernie Sanders campaign people describes him as having opened up consulting, political consulting for African-Americans and brought African-Americans into his inner circle. So other uh, scholars have talked about this as black faces in high places. So Bill Clinton was very effective, and Hillary was a part of this. You know, she comes out and campaigns for the crime bill. That's where this famous quote comes from, her talking about bring bring back the police, we need more police. And then her, her statement in 96, bring them to heal, which was said about, you know, calling youth of color uh, super predators. But again, she doesn't use the language of race directly, mm. but these are dog whistle politics in which you say the word super predator. In the 1980s and 1990s, people knew what that meant. It was about these young people that had been arrested in the war on drugs, the height of the crack crisis. Mm. So even though it's not said, um, having lived through that era, you knew what that meant. So the Clintons have always been able, been able to negotiate this complex um, stance where they use and usurp essentially the real um, rhetorical and also the not just rhetoric, but the practices of criminalization. And it's important to note that under the Clintons, um, under Bill Clinton's presidency with Hillary as first lady, 600,000 people were put in prison, and that's at the federal and state level. Now, of course, the president isn't directly responsible for putting people in state prisons, but the passage of mandatory minimums, the of federal mandatory minimum law, the expansion of the death penalty with 60 new crimes, you know, this use of the punitive rhetoric, punitive turn and punishment policies from the top down helped to help to really push states further to the right. So they preside over the single biggest period of mass incarceration, much more so than the notorious Republican drug warriors of Richard Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan and George Bush. But somehow the Clintons have been able to represent themselves as the friends of African-Americans, so much so that Toni Morrison, the Nobel Prize laureate, says in jest that he is the first black president. And while many people um, say that Toni Morrison was essentially saying that with a certain amount of humor and irony, she was talking about listening to conversations among other African-American elites in D.C., calling him the first black president. Why? 
one, he played the saxophone on Arsenio <laughs> Hall. That, what can you say about that? I mean, I think people forget how huge that was, too. Like, that was a pretty big deal. Like, in general, I mean, that was huge. In terms of cultural politics, yeah. absolutely. You know, playing the saxophone, I think, didn't he put on a pair of, like, uh, Risky <laughs> Business black, yeah. black Ray-Bans? Um, so, in a, in, a, in a country that's extremely racially polarized, so the symbolic, you know, the use of the racial symbolic was very important. There was that, but it was also, you know, and this is, needs more needs to be written about this, the, the use of patronage networks and the ways in which his close ties and the political machine to black elected officials. So he was being legitimized both through this like cultural politics of, you know, being comfortable with black culture, being willing to enter black venues, and then also having black, uh, the black political class being a part of the Clinton's world. And that imagery and those networks really veiled the core policies, which arguably are the worst policies, much more extensive even than the retrenchment and punishment campaigns of the Reagan era, that, that, that all of that was hidden and veiled by the racial symbolic. Mm. So, and the Clintons continue to be able to do this. So, and, you know, there's been criticism by certain sectors that to talk about uh, Hillary in conjunction with Bill is sexist. And I just want to address this directly. Hillary Clinton herself has argued, and she argued this in her Senate race, and she's argued it in this current presidential race, that her period as first lady, she was intimately involved in policymaking, and that this was a period of her own political experience. And you can't have it both ways. You can't claim the credential of having worked um, with her husband together uh, on health care reform and other forms of policy and then say, I'm not responsible for what happened under my husband's presidency. As we've seen in her rhetoric, anti-crime rhetoric, anti-gang rhetoric, she was very much involved not only in health care, but in all different aspects of Bill Clinton's presidency. So I think we have to talk about that as part of her record of what she calls strength and experience. So, you know, I think it's absurd to say that that it's sexist to to deal with that portion of her political career because she herself has used it as a credential. Well said. <laughs> um, I think that was the best argument um, to make against it or to counter what she's saying. But um, on the on the, the sort of patronage network um, that you mentioned, uh, I think that that's like really, bit, I mean, it's been left out of a lot of the analysis, it seems, um, about why Hillary Clinton has so much support uh, among um, black people in the South, and it's sort of been used as a way to say, oh, they just don't like Bernie Sanders. Um, and so I guess I want to use it as a way to segue into the fact that Bernie Sanders does seem to have made inroads, particularly with black millennials who are organizing around and for his campaign. And then also he too has, you know, those black intellectuals that support his campaign. He's got, um, you know, Killer Mike stumping for him. Um, so I guess, could you talk a little bit about uh, the support for Bernie Sanders among the black community? Well, I think this is a very exciting moment. You know, um, even on the, the dark day of Super Tuesday, uh, when B Bernie Sanders lost uh, such a large percentage of the African-American vote, I still found it to be very interesting. So if you go back to the South Carolina primary, um, Bernie Sanders uh, was defeated by a large margin, maybe 30 percent, I think, and in a majority black vote. But if you disaggregated the black vote by age, you saw that it was roughly 54 Clinton, 43 uh, Sanders. And so the 
the disjuncture of age is true throughout all these different groups. It's true among Latinos, it's true among African Americans, and it's also true among white voters, that even though Bernie is more popular among white voters, he's infinitely more popular among people under 30. So I think this is very exciting, and it's related to the way that I interpret the Sanders campaign, and I wish people would talk about this more, is really it's a core anti-austerity campaign that has its counterparts with Jeremy Corbyn in England and the um, the, the uh, Savitsa party in Greece, that um, because of the United States' own political culture, I think there's a discomfort in talking about the politics of the left and naming it directly. But essentially, Bernie Sanders is a New Deal Democrat, which that is derided by some people who are part of the organized left. But in the mm-hmm. context of what's happened in the U.S., what a conservative country it is, the extreme privatization, the free trade policies, so-called free trade, the subsidies for industry to locate abroad, the um, real drop of corporate tax rates, and the, the dissolution largely of the American welfare state. Running as a New Deal Democrat is a big deal, and young people understand this because they want a future. So when looking at African Americans, I've met people in the Sanders campaign. I um, was involved in a dialogue that happened about 10 days before the Nevada primary, and Cornell West was there, I was there, and Christopher Witt, and then people from the uh, Black Caucus, Democratic Caucus um, in Las Vegas from Clark County, which is the center of African-American vote in Nevada. And we had an amazing three-hour discussion about all these different kinds of issues related to Uh, Bernie Sanders' idea of a political revolution, what that means on the ground for African-Americans, and also how we assess uh, Hillary Clinton's candidacy. And it was just a very exciting dialogue. And I got to meet all the different black organizers from all over the country, including the head of African-American National Outreach, um, the former field director in South Carolina, and uh, and then um, a whole campaign staff that they have in a famous his- black historic building in Atlanta called the Odd Fellows Building. And it was exciting because what I saw, first of all, is that this is an insurgent campaign inside the Democratic Party. These are not your usual suspects. And I've never really seen a political campaign like this. These are people who are truly committed to uh, supporting Bernie Sanders, not just professional campaign people. And a lot of the people that I met were people who are well-educated, who came from poor and working-class backgrounds. So there's a strong class component going on in the Sanders campaign. And I think that if you look at this new, I would cry, as we were talking about the response to Trump at UIC, which is home of BYP 100, in the same way, I see new coalitions being formed in black um kind of the black support for the Sanders campaign. So you see essentially black left academics, of which there are many, including myself, um, Angela Davis, uh, Cornel West, Michelle Alexander, many, many, many people. I mean, hundreds of black intellectuals and journalists have been actively involved in supporting the Sanders campaign, um, both through the things that they write, through social media, and then through, uh, you know, large events. And then you have people like Killer Mike, and you have portions of the arts community, Spike Lee. So a lot of the kind of, um, and I'm hesitant to talk about the class politics of this, but you do have a lot of black um, meaning makers supporting Bernie Sanders. You also have the Sanders campaign doing organized outreach to black labor. So, for example, they were involved in a fight for a $12 minimum wage in Birmingham, and Sanders supporters got directly involved in this and making coalitions with the communication workers, with Larry Cohen. So a portion of the left 
the, the left wing of the labor movement has also there's also been outreach there. So I see this as a new kind of coalition that's combining their efforts to do outreach to the historically black colleges. So combining black millennials, black left intellectuals and meaning makers and cultural producers and then the left wing of the labor movement. Some of the images that have not made it into the mainstream are that their core organizing campaign was among historically black colleges. And first of all, just the choice of that is so wonderful and important. And I think that the comfort with doing that kind of outreach is different even than we saw in um, Barack Obama's campaign because of Barack Obama's uh, attempt to negotiate being, as he always says, you know, president of the United States, not just president, president of America, not just president of Afro-America. But this has been an exciting election because the black vote in some ways has been treated as very important. And I think that that is related to the anti-state sanctioned violence movement and Black Lives Matter. So we see this active courting of black people and discussions about them. And the Sanders campaign has just had some of the most radical organizing efforts. There's, If you go online, there's amazing footage of an event that they organized at Morehouse in which they they had people from Morehouse, from Spelman, from the Atlanta area, and then also people coming from the surrounding area, other black, historically black colleges. And the Omega Sci-Fi fraternity, which is kind of the quintessential black nationalist fraternity, got up before Sanders gave his campaign speech and did a full step show. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, kind of South African boot dance, amazing in full suits and ties. So that expression of black cultural power is so important. And it also speaks to... The networks within the Sanders campaign at Morehouse, you know, which is one of the preeminent men's college, historically black university, very powerful, symbolic. So I think that the mainstream representation of the Sanders campaign as simply white is not fair. I've met the African-American campaign workers. There were a lot of them in the South. And there was not enough discussion about... Um, one, the Clinton's patronage networks, that these are longstanding networks, so much so if we, if we remember in 2008, many of the black um, legislators supported Hillary, not Barack Obama. So this goes back a very long way. And we didn't even see someone like John Lewis shift his allegiance from Hillary to Barack Obama until much later in the campaign when it became clear that it was likely that Obama would become the Democratic nominee. So um, it's exciting to see the vote in Michigan in which um, Bernie Sanders won 30 percent of the vote, but he won 49 percent of black people. I think it was under 40, not under 30. So, again, that you know strong age component. And I'm really excited and curious to see what's going to happen with some of the other elections in North, in the North, the Midwest, and in the West Coast. Now, now, we're both almost as enthusiastic as you, if not more enthusiastic when it comes to Bernie Sanders' campaign. So I want to spend some time rebutting some of the common conventional wisdom that's being pushed by uh, not just media commentators, but also the the ranks of supporters for Hillary Clinton, but also establishment Democrats who are making claims about the, the campaign that I think do a disservice to the intersections of social movements and the, the numerous people who are mobilizing by the millions um, and the small, the amazing small donations, the fact that he's getting so much money on a daily basis, raising millions of dollars to put together a countering force to such a powerful family in American politics that is the Clintons. And so my first thing would be to just 
How do you react to someone who comes to you with the question uh, that Bernie Sanders doesn't know how to talk to black voters or doesn't know how to talk about black people? Uh, That's a very flawed question on its own, but then once you get into digging into that premise, how do you tackle that? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, Well, I think that... There are constraints that the Sanders campaign faces, and some of them are structural constraints, like voter suppression. So, you know, in talking to some of the black organizers in the campaign, they were talking about the difficulty of doing on-ground canvassing in South Carolina, where you had a population that's heavily rural. And remember, Bernie Sanders is an independent, not a Democrat. And these are in communities that have been voting Democrat since the late 60s. So the Democratic Party is so much associated with African-American fate and politics. So to have a white senator who's 74 years old from Vermont, which is a state which is 98 percent, something incredible. It's one of the whitest states in the United States, uh, trying to make himself legible and, um, and recognizable to black voters is a challenge. Now, the way that this is being posed, which is he doesn't know how to talk about black people, that's a foregone conclusion and a partisan one. But I think that um, you have the problem of, first, some of the populations that I think are the most uh, radicalizable in the U.S. are people who are shut out of the legal economy, people that have felony convictions, people that have spent time in prison, and, and people that have been the most affected by the Clinton's policies, both mass incarceration and the welfare retrenchment. Many of these people can't vote. And there are real constraints, in addition to the ones we always hear about, about gerrymandering of voter districts, about the use of special IDs. But a law was passed in South Carolina in which when you're an on-the-ground canvasser, you have to get from a potential um, voter registrant, someone who wants to register to vote, not only their name and their address, their birthday, but also their social security number. Mm. So I would like to see more discussion about how the electorate itself has been created and shaped and how that's affecting the Sanders campaign. It's even more true for Latinos. Um, There was a wonderful interview from a journalist named Andrea Grimes that I saw on, on Super Tuesday. We were both on Democracy Now! together. And she was essentially talking about the shifting demographics of Texas, but how So much of the Latino vote, even though the Mexican population and the larger Latino population is growing so rapidly that so many people are kept out of the electorate through all different modes of disfranchisement, that this is having a direct effect on the Sanders campaign. So that's one thing, or like the structural constraints of the people that are the most left out and really injured by the status quo being unable to vote. I don't think we should just skip over that, especially in a place like Florida. This is a very big percentage of the populations of color. But two is that um, I think that Bernie Sanders has amazing credentials in the civil rights movement and, you know, not only working in the Southern civil rights movement, but also um, with the King Poor People's Campaign and fight for open housing in Chicago. But I think in looking at American politics, for someone who is a democratic socialist to be a viable national politician, we know that Sanders is originally from New York, that you know, Vermont is one of the most liberal states in the union. It's also a very small state and relatively poor state. So precisely the thing that made that form of politics viable does present a problem in national politics because of its absence of African-American and other voters of color. So we are all formed, and I'm a social historian and a really a big believer in region. So I think that that is another issue. Um, 
On the other hand, uh, Bernie Sanders, his support for these redistributive programs, his support for the regulation of Wall Street. Of course, we know that African-Americans were the, the most injured by the subprime crisis in 2008, which is a direct result of the deregulation of Wall Street under the Clinton administration. So his message resonates deeply with black millennials. Um, and I think that it really is an issue about core policies, you know, wanting free higher education, wanting the state to say that, the, that young people's future matters. And I think that Bernie Sanders does that brilliantly. Um, in terms of his symbolic racial politics, I think that Bernie Sanders, and this is just a, it's not a criticism, but I think it's an assessment that he has, um, you know, Bill Clinton benefited from being a white Southerner that had grown up in a particular kind of culture and is able to make himself easily legible to black people. And he's much better at doing it than, than Hillary Clinton is, but she nevertheless draws what I from talking to people, I find that one of the reasons that people are supporting Hillary has to do with their affection for Bill among black voters. And so I think that that does matter. But I think that the media has really been deeply unfair to the Sanders campaign. There's a real dishonesty about the white, the nature of the campaign being so white and not having black campaign workers. But I think that coming from Vermont, being an independent and not being a part of these Democratic Party patronage networks has been a, a challenge for the Sanders campaign. And now just to follow up to that, uh, another thing that is extremely frustrating for someone who wants to assess the Bernie Sanders campaign and provide analysis for how things have been unfolding in this Democratic primary is when you talk about these patronage, patronage networks and when you look at the Democratic Party history, and you go back to the 1990s or even before, and you look at how they've co-opted social movements, and you look at how they've um, engaged in political compromise that uh, basically sucks a lot of the uh, energy out and it even creates divisions among groups because they're, they're divided over what agenda to push, how hard to push certain agendas. So when you, you raise these issues, then people, even though you're focusing on people who are in positions of power, you have a number of people who react to you and suggest that you're saying that all of these people who are voting for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders are duped, are fooled, that somehow they're, they're not smart enough to know what they're doing. And that's a very flawed question, in my opinion, and also something that's really hard to grapple with. And I'm wondering how you would address something like that. Well, I've been very frustrated by this as well. Um, and, you know, the, the idea that primaries, that we essentially that we shouldn't have primaries. I mean, I don't know what else to say about and it's, it's a very common position that those of us that are supporting Bernie Sanders are somehow damaging the electoral system and the Democratic Party by choosing a candidate that we support. It's ridiculous. But I think that, um, uh, and this is almost, you know, an answer that comes from my own observations, not just speaking as a, as a history professor, but really also as a, as a person, as a political person. And one of the things that I see among um, supporters for Clinton is the defensiveness because there are people that are supporting Hillary Clinton that should not be supporting her. Um, given her embrace of Henry Kissinger, 
given her viciousness on foreign policy. Um, there are friends of mine that are far to the left of Hillary, but are supporting her in an adamant way. And they're doing it because their argument is that with the Trump candidacy, we have to bind together and make sure that a Democrat is reelected. So there is this, you know, what we call lesser of two evilism, you know, that we have to choose the lesser of two evils. And if we don't do that, then we are going to be responsible for the election of someone even further to the right. So I don't know what to say about this. I think it reflects some of the true crisis that we're having in American electoral politics. You know, as Amy Goodman pointed out recently in Democracy Now!, if you look at the voting rates in the primaries, even as energized as people are with Sanders, people are still voting at roughly a rate around 10 percent, between 10 and 17 percent in the Democratic primaries. So we're, we have a real crisis of our electoral system that doesn't reflect the people. And the excitement around the Sanders campaign that is remarkable has to do with, finally, someone is addressing the issues that matter. We are worried about our children not being able to go to college. We're worried about, you know, growing older and developing major illnesses and not being able to get health care. We are worried about the um, loss of our homes because of unregulated lending practices. So these are the most material issues of people's lives. But I think what I see is a mean-spiritedness um, around the Hillary Clinton's campaign and a real attack on people that are seen as being part of the left portion of the Democratic Party. And this is a larger issue. You know, um, there's that that represents one issue, which I would say more centrist liberals attack on the perceived left of the party. I'm almost hesitant to use the word left because this is really New Deal democratic politics. It's not even democratic socialism, you know, simply arguing we should regulate Wall Street. <laughs> you know, this, these are positions that should be mainstream positions. But the politics have shifted so far right in the corporatization of American politics. So that's the first part. Um, I think the second part is, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, a more organized left response. You know, some of the major socialist organizations are not supporting Sanders because they feel that the Democratic Party is the graveyard of social movements. So there's a disillusionment with our two-party electoral system. And so even something like the Sanders campaign is seen as simply revitalizing the Democratic Party. Now, I don't agree with this position. First of all, we need structural change in the United States. And engaging the two-party system is really, it's necessary. And, but it's not the only thing that you do. You don't turn to electoral politics and drop social movement politics. You do both. And if you look at radical movements in the U.S., most of them have had that double meaning, you know, like the Black Panther Party supported essentially by the late 60s, they're Marxist-Leninists. Mm -hmm. But they run an electoral campaign in 1973 because they were trying to figure out how to make claims on the state and use state resources in order to provide redistributive policies, including a fi financial taxation, uh, a, a, finance, a, a tax on financial transactions like uh, Bernie Sanders has proposed today. So some of these are philosophical questions about politics and the American electoral system. But I think engaging the electoral system is absolutely crucial for people to consider themselves to be leftist. But it's not all you do. It's not either or. The place where the Democratic Party is the most damaging to social movements is when people throw all of their eggs into the electoral basket and feel that they're going to realize these forms of politics simply through voting. 
um, I think that's a mistake. You need to, to continue the kind of independent organizing that we've seen in BYP 100. We charge genocide, you know, of providing a, uh, an independent poll uh, of politics. But the simple repudiation of voting, I think, is very dangerous. That's part of what's allowed the country to, to shift even further right. Oh, that no. said, I understand why people aren't voting. We're all frustrated that we have a government that doesn't reflect our core values. No, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything you just said, um, especially I'm glad you brought that up with there is there are certain segments of the left that are putting this um, this argument forward of, uh, yeah, if I, we can't vote for Bernie Sanders, it's just going to sell out like every Democrat has. It's you know, that's we can't engage in in the two party system. Um, and I, I do notice I mean, I think part of that um, might be because the left is just so fractured and like you mentioned, very disillusioned. Um, that, uh, that it's like, there's, I, I don't know, there's certain segments of the left that just feel that, um, that just feel like it's more important to just be super pure. There's like this kind of purity <laughs> politics, right? <laughs> like he's not a pure enough socialist or he's not a pure enough this. Um, and I think Kevin actually had a, we talked earlier about a particular question, um, about this specifically is just the, the idea that somehow Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are no different or something. Um, when I think that really misses the fact that there are enormous differences between the two, uh, that are huge. And also to your point about, um, about, uh, the idea that Hillary Clinton is more electable. I don't, I don't even think that that's people being duped. I think that that's just the media has been telling people that that's what the media is saying. They're saying that Hillary Clinton is more electable when in fact polls show the opposite, that it's Bernie Sanders who has a better chance of beating someone like Donald Trump. Um, but that's being totally ignored. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. And I know Kevin, um, you had a question about, uh, about, I think BLM, right? Well, uh, well, first, just to this whole point of uh, the fact that like people are sitting out and they're not getting engaged. Uh, I mean, there's one thing that's been really striking about the Sanders campaign, and I'm wondering if if you'd react to that before I get to the you know what I guess would be my final question for you. Because one thing that is incredible to watch is someone who's running for the nomination of the Democratic Party stand up there and in. I believe this was, it's actually in both the Flint debate and then the debate that was in Miami, standing on stage and actually declaring that the Democratic Party has been wrong, that there has been numerous times that people who are in positions of power as Democrats have gotten policies wrong, whether we're talking about corporate welfare or we're talking about um, any number of issues that they have been wrong. And also that I was very struck by one question. I, I was, I'm unable to find the actual answer here, but I can paraphrase it. Uh, there was a student in the Nevada town hall who asked him, and I was just surprised that this was being raised, asked him about the two-party system and asked what could be done in this country to open up our system so we had more parties, uh, so that we had more voices in our uh, democracy that people could choose when they go to vote. And I was very pleased that he didn't back away from this question and, and, and pointed out that there are 
there's France and other countries in Europe that have numerous parties that people can vote for and that he actually thought that this is something that our country needs to push towards, having more parties, having more voices that are running for office. Wow, that's wonderful. I have to look that up. I'd, I'd really like to see that exchange. I, I, it's very, very important. Um, I'm so glad that he responded like that. Um, it's it's a complex question because, um, you know, some of the organized left, they support the Green Party and they'll support independent formations, but not the Democratic Party. But the problem is that the entire structure, and you can go back and read the Federalist Papers about winner-take-all elections, the use of the Electoral College and the primary system itself, that's privileging small states with small populations, and um, many of them, some of the very whitest states, have prevented, you know, democratic participation. So we have so many different structural mechanisms of our two-party system that prevent the viability of a third party. But um, I, I often bring up the candidacy um, of um, the former Secretary of Agriculture under um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a way to talk about the importance of third party and independent appeals to a, a politics to the left of the Democratic Party. And I think that we need more of that. On the other hand, I just think it's a real mistake to say that we will never support anyone inside the Democratic Party because the Sanders campaign to me is deeply, deeply important because it's challenging the basis of what Democratic Party politics are since 1984. So you know, one of the things I talk about in my article is the rise of the Democratic Leadership Council and how it was response to this massive defeat of the Democrats in 84, in which Ronald Reagan won 49 states. The only state that he did not win was Minnesota, which was Walter Mondale's home state. And there is a perceived crisis in the Democratic Party, and you had different interests that wanted to really increase the influence of donors and of elected officials themselves trying to roll back the electoral reforms of the late 60s that had tried to make the Democratic Party more more responsive to its different and diverse constituents. So Sanders, just his candidacy in and of itself as an independent, running as a Democrat, interjecting this whole new policy portfolio of redistributive, you know, redistributive economic policies. And um, his foreign policy views are to the left of Hillary Clinton. Um, they are not necessarily what we would all wish for, but um, I think that his oppositional vote to the Iraq war is absolutely foundational in 2003. So I, the thing that makes me really excited about the Sanders campaign is both the Bernie Sanders' own sense of integrity and history as running as a, someone who self-identifies as a socialist in American politics, which is almost impossible to do. I mean, I came of age in the Cold War, so... I am just shocked to see all these young people fascinated and interested in socialism. It's very exciting because we always have to remember how truly conservative the United States is. It's important not to, to use European models. And I think that that's one of the reasons why certain organized left or left formations, they were using a European model of politics. You know, they're thinking of German social democracy, mm. but the United States is far to the right on economic issues to Germany. I mean, it's entirely different history where, you know, Bismarck himself supported the creation of state bureaucracies and a redistributive bureaucracy. It has a very different history than the U.S. So I'm not sure if that's addressing your question exactly, but I, I see the excitement of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Suddenly, we're all Googling electoral colleges. <laughs> we're all Googling the primary structure. And we're all thinking, why 
why is this happening? Why is such a small number of people in Iowa determining the outcome of people standing in a gymnasium in a caucus, mm-hmm. right? We're all seeing how truly undemocratic caucuses are, thinking, how can we eliminate the caucus system? How, how come California can't vote sooner? Why are the large states, why do they come last in the primary system? So I think that this candidacy has a potential to uh, create Um, a real insurgency around electoral reform, because without some form of electoral reform, not only campaign finance, you know, since Citizen United and also before, but also all these other mechanisms that are checks on democratic participation and voting, it's going to be very hard for us to transform our electoral system. But the Sanders campaign is opening up that possibility. So on the one hand, it's allowing a discussion about economic redistribution, Medicare for all. But on the other hand, it's also highlighting the structural barriers barriers that are impeding us getting candidates that represent us. Uh, you know, I, I do want to ask about this um... It's interesting what you say, because with Hillary Clinton, it does seem as though all of the stuff that you mentioned earlier about voter suppression, about the and right now about electoral politics and also about the lack of like Democratic the Democratic Party having like any structure in certain places because of gerrymandering um, and the level of, you know, felon disenfranchisement, for example, um, keeping sort of the people who would be more uh, um, who would be more attracted to more radical policies out of the out of the electorate. All of these things that have really been initiated mostly by by the Republicans have been it seems like those are the things that are benefiting Hillary Clinton in the primary. Um and keeping more like more of like a liberal electorate out. Uh, and so it kind of goes to the fact that it does seem like with the Democratic Party, it's it's such an umbrella party. But it seems as though Hillary Clinton really is kind of like a Republican. And she is actually I would say she is. She really does represent like a traditional Republican, in my opinion, um, on a lot of the you know her policy outlooks. Whereas, like you mentioned, Bernie Sanders is like this New Deal Democrat. It's almost like an old school Republican Democrat like campaign, but in a primary. And so I just wonder, like, do you think that that's going to be sustainable um, in a party where you can have a party that is just so split? Like it really does seem not everyone who's voting for Hillary Clinton, obviously, is like, you know, is is a moderate or whatever you want to call him, a moderate liberal or a moderate conservative. But, uh, you know, that's uh, that this what she represents. I mean, moving forward, it doesn't seem like you can have a party where half of the people are like liberals who want even a more liberal party and the other half are these sort of moderates who are centrists and want to keep moving to the right. Yeah, that's very well said. I agree with you entirely saying that it's almost like a, um, if we were to take the politics of, let's say the 1970s, 1980s about almost like having a Republican Democrat split within the primaries. But you know, this is where Hillary Clinton and thinking about, I do think it's important to think of the Clintons as a team because they are, she's drawing on her husband's political networks and political machine and she helped build them. So I, I think it makes sense to interpret them as a team. Um, but, you know, Alan Greenspan said about Bill Clinton, he's the best Republican we've had in a long while, you know. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, and the I, I have that quote in my article from Joe Biden, who says that if we were to look back, it, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I have the exact quote in my article. But if we were to look at if we were to look back at um, he's talking about the 
Democratic Party in the 1990s, and it's tough on crime stance, and he's praising it. And he says, if we were to look back on time, the Democrats, we would look more like J. Edgar Hoover, and the Republicans would look like Abby Hoffman. So, you know, they did this, you know, Bill Clinton was the architect. And I think um, I'm not dismissive of the Clintons. I think that they are brilliant political operatives. They really are. And that's why they're able to reinvent themselves so effectively. But their core, uh, co- their core contribution, if we could call it that, <laughs> uh, to Democratic Party politics was to move it so far to the right that they stripped the Republicans of their, of their policy platform from the right. And so Hillary Clinton is growing directly out of that network that made that possible. Um, yeah, talking about it is it's very sobering to me. <laughs> you know, that my voice starts to get lower and I start to talk more slowly because it's just really, really not good. Um, so much of us, there are people that are disfranchised, you know, through felon disfranchisement and kept out and... Uh, gerrymandered. But then there there are others of us, I would include myself in this, who have been kept out of politics because we don't have something that we can vote for. Right. And the Sanders campaign is the first time for me personally, because I was a young person uh, in college during um, Jesse Jackson's second presidential run in 88. And I still have these vivid memories of sitting in the kitchen with my housemates who are also in college. We're making pesto. And it was the Democratic convention. And seeing um, uh, Spanish spoken on the on the stage and seeing LGBTQ, you know, like seeing the silence equals death lambda. This is, at the, this is at the height of the AIDS crisis. And then listening which, to... Which the Reagans did a really wonderful job per Hillary Clinton of bringing attention to. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think everyone is just... I mean, outrage doesn't even begin to capture how we feel about her saying that. And it speaks to, once again, outstripping the Democratic Party from the right. You know, so trying to place herself in the line of Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. So like that moment, I still remember it very vividly because it was a combination of, you know, the limits again on American democracy, new groups being broached and also talking about economic redistribution. And so for me, in my mind, not just uh, politically, but also emotionally, the Sanders campaign has that kind of resonance. If I had to compare it to a previous campaign, it would be Jesse Jackson. And of course, we know that Bernie Sanders was supporting Jesse Jackson. So there is... Um, And I'm curious how you guys feel about this. We see, if you look at the culture of the United States, separate from the state, the universities, the um, even television, to some extent, what's being produced in cable television is far to the left of our state politics. And many of us feel as if we are kept out of the electoral system because we don't have a politician to vote for who represents us. And that has to do with how the Democratic Party has shifted right. So I'm... I'm I'm specifically reacting, and I and I mean this with the most respect to the people involved who are doing this. But I'm I'm specifically reacting to something that was said by Professor Melina Abdullah on Democracy Now, and and what she said was, when we think about what democracy is, democracy being ruled by the people, we need to really kind of redefine what that means and break away from this notion that the only way of being democratic is engaging in electoral politics. I actually don't disagree okay. with that statement. But then she says, and we're not telling people not to vote. We're simply not endorsing any presidential candidate, recognizing that where we want to put our time and energy is in the development of people to act in their own interests and on their own behalf. And so we are pushing the real revolution. And and I, I guess in reading this, I sort of 
have a difficult time with it because in every single Bernie Sanders speech, he makes the he puts a lot of emphasis on this fact that you have to be with me after the election. I need these social movements in order to get these policies done. And what is the question he keeps getting? How are you going to get any of these fantasy proposals through the Congress? Well, he keeps saying, well, I'm going to need people out and I'm going to need you to be out there doing struggling. I'm going to have to have people, you know, if, if we want single-payer health care, just take that for example, then you're going to have to have people who are engaged in some kind of activism and, and sort of uh, building up this whole, you know, you have to shift the consensus, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, the rationale for why they're, uh, the anxiety about being folded into the Democratic Party um, I, there are historical precedents for it, I'll put it that way. My own view of this is that it is very important to make claims on the state. You know, the core issue that we face, and neoliberalism is a term that some academics are uncomfortable with it because it's so broad. Um, but if you think about it, the way I understand the neoliberal era is post-New Deal, and I'm talking about inside the United States. Because in the global south, it, it, has a, it has a different structure, but they're, of course, related to each other with structural adjustment programs and the use of IMF and lending practices of these you know, international financial uh, institutions. But inside the United States, the way that I understand the neoliberal era is that we are seeing a retreat from the New Deal welfare state. So the discussion of the privatization of Social Security, the transformation under the Reagan administration from pensions, which are regulated, to 401ks, which was a huge gift to Wall Street by people investing their essentially retirement, you know, retirement savings in Wall Street. So one of the biggest issues that we're facing is the economic, um, how do I put this, the, the estate in which we're having a great difficulty as Americans, North Americans, U.S. citizens, in making claims on the state and saying the state should do this for us. The state should provide us with, um, uh, it should it should protect us from um, uh, lending practices that make it that make us lose our homes. It should provide our children with well-funded public education that will allow them to essentially realize themselves. And also that the state cannot simply incarcerate and police and kill and fight wars. We want a state that does things for the people, not just a warfare state. And I think making claims on the state is absolutely crucial. We're in the country that has the largest defense apparatus in the world. We have the biggest police state that, and I just use that as a very simple technical term, talking about the numbers of police and the scale of the state apparatus, really in the world and arguably in world history. So to repudiate the state and say, we're no longer going to engage with the state, I think it's impossible to have a, a, a political revolution without engaging the state. Now, that, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean get your Democratic Party you know, card and stop doing anything else. <laughs> you know, that's idiocy. But do we need to make claims on the state? Absolutely. How are you going to fight state violence without making claims on the state? Because we are not able, I mean, the alternate is what? To build an army, right? I mean, the, and this form of protest where you simply stand outside and protest with a sign, this will never change state policy. Right. 
you know, and to look at, and I think it's a misrepresentation of the black radical movement. The Panthers, as I have said, they supported multiple forms of politics, including carrying um, loaded unconcealed weapons, which was legal in 1966, to say in a very Weberian way, the state does not possess the single legitimate means of force. So this is an actual use of armed self-defense, much more radical stance than what we're seeing today. But those same people, six years later, run a mayoral campaign because they're trying to figure out how to implement state redistribution, how to restructure the police. So I think that not simply abdicating an engagement with the state reinforces this period of neoliberal state retrenchment. And I think, for me, us engaging the state in every way, including supporting candidates that are trying to provide concrete proposals to stop police violence and stop the mechanisms of mass incarceration, as well as uh, repudiate the constant imperial wars we're involved in, is just crucial. I don't know how else to fight the militarization of police, except to have a portion of the movement directly engage with how we change these practices. Well, I'm so glad you said that. Um, that's really an illuminating way to look at it, because I noticed that this is an issue, um, you know, not just with the quote that Kevin mentioned, but there is this notion and misconception that is very uh, good for neoliberalism, this idea that, yeah, not engaging with the state and the only way to protest, the only way to get anything done ever is just constant disruption, but not never actually, you know, trying to engage with power. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe that has something to do with the left, just like people on the left, groups on the left, just it's been so long since the left has any, any idea what it even means to be in a position of some sort of influence. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm really glad you said that. And I'm really glad that it, cause that was like, that was an excellent way to put it. Thank you. Well, I would thank you for giving us your time. It's been very enlightening. And I certainly hope that all of our listeners uh, take as much away from this discussion as, as I've taken. Uh, so um, thank you. Thank you very much.